We're going to be reading Psalm chapter uh, 126, uh, all six verses. And uh, this series has been uh, refreshing to us as we begin to reflect on um, uh, songs that Jesus would have sung. Uh, If Jesus had an iPod, uh, we know what 150 of his songs would have been. They would have been on this. These would have been his songs. These would have been the songs that he sang, that his his mother would have hummed these tunes. Uh, When his dad was working, he would have whistled these songs. Jesus would have been intimately familiar uh, with singing. He would have had famous singers that he uh, had favorite voices maybe in local synagogues there would have been somebody who stood up to lead worship in one of these songs and you can just see the power of the spoken word of truth through a voice with instrumentation and how the power of a song really uh, affects us and so in that same way we're trying to capture that idea that Jesus sang these songs and that these Psalms, these songs were packed with theological content. They were packed with real life situations. The, when we started the series five weeks ago, we talked about Sitz and Leben, which is the German theological phrase for situation in life, that every one of these psalms was born out of a situation. Something was taking place. Something was happening. There was a set of circumstances that somebody was really in when these songs were written. And a lot of times um, we just sort of read through these as though they were sort of dry poems. But, but if you can transport yourself back into the situation that the person writing this song was feeling, was thinking, even with the absence of a beautiful voice or with uh, an, uh, an instrument or a band, um, we can almost capture some of that uh, glory of some of these songs. And so this morning we're looking at Psalm 126. Let's read it together. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, immediately when I read, some of you, you just raise your hand. How many of you are first verses didn't say restore the fortunes. Alright, what does yours say? John? Alright, captivity. How many of yours say anything about captivity? Anybody have a different version? What does yours say, Ariel? Brings back the captives. What about you, Lenora? What does yours say? Alright, when he, when he brings back the captives of Zion. Anybody else have a different translation? Should be one of those two. Lord, restore our fortunes. Also found in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, uh, or it will say release from captivity. So we want to unpack uh, what, what it is, why this psalm is translated in two different ways and how it was sung and what that means. And I think, I trust that you'll find this interesting uh, in, in the interpretation of how this text 
applies to you today, uh, how it applies to us today, and, and how um, this idea of captivity and restoration of fortune, uh, how a Jewish person, how Jesus might have understood this when he sang this song. So with that in mind, let's say a prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Your Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to say that the word of God uh, is it goes out for the purpose, it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it, that like rain that waters the earth and like the snow that melts, that it has a purpose in where and how you send it. We thank you, Lord, that your word is the same, that it goes out for the purpose for which you sent it, and it is not in vain. And so we thank you that it's not a coincidence that we're here this morning, that we're listening to these words in our situation in life, And we thank You, Lord, that You are personal, that You speak to us through Your Word and by Your Spirit. So it's our prayer today that You would do what You always do, that You would take Your Word, that You would illuminate it through the power of Your Holy Spirit, and that as He speaks to us, uh, that we would understand what it is that You would say to us today, how we should respond to You in faith and in trust. We ask that You would draw near to us and that You would use this time for Your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, when we take a look at this, immediately we're confronted with this idea when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion or when the Lord released the captives uh, from Babylon. Uh, A couple of things just to say about that first verse. Uh, It could have, oftentimes in the title, it would say uh, a psalm of the exiles. This would have been a song of the exile. So uh, you know that around 587, uh, the Jewish nation was carried off into captivity uh, by Babylon, and they were kept there for 70 years. And during their time in captivity, you understand Jeremiah was prophesying, was telling people, you're going into captivity, Babylon is coming. There were false prophets that were saying, nothing is going wrong, nothing is going to happen, everything is fine. And sure enough, Babylon came and they wiped it out and they took everybody with them. And those who stayed, wanted to go back to uh, Egypt and it was just a huge mess. Um, And so oftentimes uh, after that 70 year period of exile, uh, there will be a title that describes coming back from exile, coming back from captivity under leaders like Nehemiah, under leaders like Ezra uh, and 500-ish, they were sending people back to repopulate and rebuild Israel. And so when they would have come back, This would have been an enormous, uh, wonderful thing. This would have been an incredible thing for these captives to be coming back. But that phrase, bring back the captives, is also tied to this idea of restoring fortune. As a matter of fact, if you translate it woodenly, like if you just went word for word, it would say, restore the fortunes. But if you were to do a word search on that phrase, restore the fortunes, you would find that it's used over and over and over again in Scripture. And I just have a few to read for you. Probably earliest is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3, um, when he has described the blessings of following the covenant, and he's described the curses of going against the covenant. And then Moses has just said, listen, if you follow the rules and you obey the law, these are the blessings that you can expect. 
It will be uh, blessings of wealth. It will be blessings of crops. It will be blessings of family, military strength, uh, national security. If you worship me and you follow the law sort of embodied in those Ten Commandments, you can expect great blessing. But if you, if you go against it, and if you fail to live up to your promise and to the covenant, then you can expect curses. You can expect exile. You can expect a nation to attack and to, uh, to carry you off. And this is exactly what took place. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3, he's predicting that when they fall away, he says, after you return, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes bringing you back, restoring your fortunes, and will have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, I'm not going to read 20 verses, but I can point to 20 verses that all describe about the same thing. Restoration of fortune is the same as bringing back captives. The same as bringing back captives biblically. It's almost the same thing. Jeremiah 29, uh, you know this passage very well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for welfare and not for evil. They're plans to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a passage Jeremiah wrote to the people in captivity in Babylon. Then he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Those two ideas are married together. Restore the fortunes is an idiom. It's a phrase. It's a, it's a cliche for a Jewish person to say, bring back the captives. Bring us back. Put us together as a nation again and let us flourish as a united people together, not as a separated people um, that are experiencing all the hardships of war and all the hardships of division and separation, all the financial things that destroy a nation. He's saying, bring us together that we may experience the fortunes. When Job lost everything in Job 42.10, it says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. He had more kids. He had twice as many sheep. He had twice as many cattle. He had everything. And this is the phrase. His fortunes were restored. Psalm 53 uh, and Psalm 14 both mirror Psalms. It says that salvation would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of His people. In uh, Psalm 85, probably one of the better Psalms that we can point to, it gives a fuller description of restore the fortunes. It says, Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew Your wrath. You You turned from Your hot anger. Restore us again, O Lord. God of our salvation and put away your indignation toward us. Oh Lord, revive us again was the cry of Psalm 85. And so you see that wrapped up in this little phrase, restore our fortunes, is this whole idea of 
national revival, bringing people back, restoring the glory that is God dwelling with His people and them prospering, not just financially, but mentally, socially, um, ethically, that in every, militarily, in every way, they are experiencing the blessing and favor of God wrapped up in this little phrase, restore our fortunes. Now, if, if we were in a different kind of church, we might read a passage like this and say, listen, God wants you to be wealthy, right? He wants you to have all your needs met and He wants to give you all the stuff that you want and He wants you to be sort of materialistic and you would read a phrase like this and you would say, I can get on board with a prayer like this, right? Restore my fortune, Lord. Give me, give me lots of fortunes. So when we read this and we don't take into account that it has a history, it has a, a long history packed into these three words, and it means way more than how much money you have in your bank account. Restore our fortunes. Restore our fortunes. He's saying bring the captives back. Bring them back and let our nation thrive again. Now, we can have sort of a picture that may help us understand what this looks like. Uh, 1939, World War II begins. December 7th, 1941 was the date that Pearl Harbor happened, and when the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor, instantly America was thrust into a war. And this six-year-long war um, was really proven to be a battle of attrition. Not only were we fighting overseas and on all these battlefronts in the Pacific theater, in the air, in the sea, and, the, and we were also on the ground in Europe, and all these places we were not only working, but there was a whole war front that was taking place here in America, right? You remember all these iconic posters of, of people uh, scrapping metal so that they can build armaments, of people um, making munitions, of people uh, getting food together and packaging and all these things so that we could sustain the war effort. And you get posters like Rosie the Riveter. You remember Rosie the Riveter? And you get all these things where people are doing all they can for five years to sustain the war effort. I read a fascinating article this week about how the war could largely be won and attributed to, uh, in large part, due to the fact that we outlasted and outsupplied every other army there was. Your grandparents, my grandparents, understood how to, uh, if you ever have a grandmother that, that washes out a, uh, a Ziploc baggie or that <laughs> hangs up paper towels to dry them, like you understand where this came from. They lived during a time when they rationed everything in order to win a war and it depleted our nation, our reserves, everything. And so in May of 1945, when two million people gathered in Times Square, and you have these great photos of these sailors you know, dipping the lady and kissing her, and these huge ticker tape parades of all these people celebrating, that picture, if you have that in your mind, of millions of people in a parade with streamers coming down, keep that in mind when you think, restore our fortunes. This is the troops coming home and America being... Um, put back on a position of prosperity. This chapter has nothing to do with America. It's just an example. This does not apply to us. This is not uh, written for us. America, we're we're a a blip on the radar biblically. I don't even know if we can find America anywhere in Scripture. So I'm not saying this applies to us as a nation. I'm just trying to give you a picture that when we came home from the war, 
This was what restore the fortunes would have looked like. This is what they would have thought, bringing everybody back. Now, what's the context that the, that the psalmist is writing in? Uh, we see the title there. It says, A Song of Ascents. There were a handful, maybe 25 or so psalms, where uh, as you started your journey to Jerusalem to worship, as early as Jericho, there's a, a, a 14 mile strip of trail that's as wide as this podium. I mean, it's very small that would weave through the, the Judean desert, uh, winding its way up to Jerusalem. And once you hit that spot as a family, you would ration up. Uh, it would take you about a day to get up there hiking with your family and you would be in a line. And as you're walking through this beautifully stark desert area, uh, you would start to sing the songs of ascent. The songs that would... This is like... Sometimes we get in the car to go to church and uh, you know my, my music is on and, and I'll say, nope, we're not, we're not going to listen to that. Let's listen to something that's going to prepare our heart for worship, right? Let's turn it off that station. Let's switch the playlist. We're going to get our hearts prepared. This is, this is what's happening in Jericho and these are the songs of ascent is they had an emotional heart-changing impact that they would sing on their way to prepare their hearts for worship. And they ramped up in intensity as soon as they got to the temple and they would sing them louder. And as you got closer, you could hear the musicians. You see a lot of these psalms have it in their title to the choir master. So there would have been a choir. So the closer you got, the louder these songs would have been sung and the more people would have felt this. And this is one of those few powerful songs of a sense. Why is it so powerful? What's the situation? What hints can we get about this psalm? Well, look at verse 4. He repeats the phrase, restore our fortunes. Repeated twice in the psalm makes it a key idea in a six-verse psalm. Anytime you're looking at a passage of Scripture, any idea that's repeated gives you clues into what its main point is about. Restore our fortunes. Restore our fortunes. Uh, it says in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Right? That's the Negev is the southern region. Uh, when It was very dry, very arid. Um, it was a desert region. And so uh, when I was in Israel last year, they said if you wanted to be wealthy, you went to the north where it was all green, all pasture, all lush farmland, beautiful up north. But if you wanted to be wise, you went south. Right? You would go spend your time in the desert where all you could do is contemplate Scripture. And this is, of course, where John the Baptist hung out. This is where Jesus went for 40 days, uh, was in these southern dry regions. So he's saying like streams in the Negev is kind of a funny phrase. When there's a stream in the Negev, it's, uh, it's a flash flood. When, when water hits a desert, one at a time, it, it rips through quickly. So it's not a stream. It's like, an, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's like opening a fire hydrant and trying to stick your face in front of it. This is what a stream in the Negev would look like. So they're saying, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Overwhelm us with your blessing and your favor and your presence and your mercy. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Verses 4, 5, and 6 give us some context into why the psalm was written. Right? Hang with me a few more minutes. He's saying, this is probably a time of dry, 
financial difficulty, spiritual dry period. Restore our fortunes. That means they're lost. You don't restore something you have, you restore something you lost. Restore our fortunes. Like streams in the Negev, we're in a dry place, the Negev. Those who sow in tears. It's a farming metaphor. They have a bag of seed and they're throwing seed and they're saying the one who is sowing is weeping. The one who is sowing in tears is looking forward to, hopefully, a shout of joy when he reaps. The one who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Shouts of joy is repeated three times in this psalm, describing the joy that can be felt when God restores their fortune. So what do we get? How can we put this together? We can put it together in this. This is a difficult, dry time. Spiritually, nationally, uh, it's a difficult time. They're remembering a time when things were amazing. Look at verse 1 and 2. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was like a dream. This is the Jewish idiom for pinch me. Is this real? Like, is this really happening? They were so amazed at how the Lord had restored and blessed abundantly that they said, we're like dream. This is like a dream. I can't even imagine. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it's so good, where it's so wonderful, where it's so good, you just, you don't want to lose the moment, right? You just, you're sitting still, you're taking in every moment, you're observing every detail. This is that idea that it's such an amazing, overwhelming place. It was better than they could have dreamed. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter. You have friends that you can just belly laugh with. Anybody have relationships like that where, where you just get around and the longer you talk, the, you just can't, you, at the end of the night your face hurts, right? Because you've just been smiling for so long and you have all these jokes and it, it's just that kind of a thing. This is that same idea that they were so overwhelmed. It, it wasn't just a dream. They were filled with laughter. Our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. It was such an amazing time that he said the other nations around us looked on and said, oh man, I wish I, wish I could be a part of that. Look how amazing their God is. Look how amazing the situation is. The other nation said, the Lord has done great things for them. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Now that's not where the psalmist is currently writing from. He's writing from a desert situation where he has no maybe finances, where there is nothing good happening. Everything is bad and he's saying, Why can't we just go back to the way things were when everything was restored? I remember how wonderful this time was. That's the context. And it's such a universal theme, right? How many of you can remember a time when things were better? (laughs) Anybody? I sat at a banquet the other night. I I, I was talking to Jess and I said, do you remember like three years ago, we sat at the pool every day. Like we had, our families had pool memberships and our biggest issue was like, what time are we going to go to the pool and we're going to eat, you know, we're going to swim all day. And now it's different. We're all working. We have extra jobs and we're doing more things and activities. I haven't been to a pool once this summer. It's like completely different. And so we were talking about what it was. It Remember how great it was just a few years ago and all of a sudden life gets crazy and it gets difficult. This is the context that he's writing from. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And it's universal. You remember a time when things were better. You're probably daydreaming about it right now, right? Come back to me. Uh, We're going to think about this. He's writing from a time because you also understand 
that there are dry times, right? You probably understand what it's like to struggle to open your Bible. You probably understand what it's like to labor in prayer and to lose hope and to be in despair. Will this ever get answered? Will this ever get paid? Will this ever reconcile? Will this relationship ever be restored? Will I ever prosper again? And, and listen, you know, like waves on an ocean, those, those kind of hopeless, despairing things, they never really, they seem to not stop when you're in that season of spiritual dryness. Can anybody relate to that? Of course we can. This is why this is a powerful psalm. When they started to sing it, when the, the beat was struck and people, they would get chills and they would begin to think because they both could identify with the times of laughter and prosper and the times of dryness. So let's close with these two application points. What do you do during dry seasons? What do you do during dry seasons? Not just spiritually, not just um, financially, not just physically. Uh, you know, what do you do during dry seasons when nothing seems to be going right or well? When you can describe verses five through six, sowing in tears, uh, weeping, the streams in the Negev. When, when, when those kind of adjectives describe your situation, I'm suppressing a gazillion stories that I could tell about how I can experience this and you can experience this. But when you're in desert seasons, what do you do? Man, I got a letter a couple months ago, just an envelope with Psalm 126 verses 5 through 6. I don't know if I was, just something about me just said, I'm sowing in tears and I'm in, I'm in death. I don't know, somebody knew and somebody just anonymously gave me an envelope full of a little bit of cash and that verse. And I just thought, oh, this is what I needed to hear. This is what I needed to hear was sowing in tears, weeping, the Negev period. What do you do in times of dryness? Well, look at verses 1 through 3. In times of spiritual deserts or marital deserts or relationship deserts or health deserts, in any of those desert times, the psalmist looks backward at what God had done in the past, listen, to find comfort and to find potency in prayer in order for him to experience um, some sort of comfort in his situation. He had to look backward. He had to look backward. If you were to listen to Psalm 42, this is very common in the Psalms. But in Psalm 42, the choir master, uh, the sons of Korah writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for God. My soul is thirsty for God, for the living God. When am I going to come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Listen, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping a festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Listen, therefore I remember you. 
deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. The Lord's command is steadfast love, and at night His song is still with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of oppression from the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. I will again hope in God, for I remember his good works. This Psalm 42 is a pattern. Listen, if you're in a dry season, if you're struggling, uh, if this is difficult, you should go back and remember. Remember these times when God has done great things for you and through you and in you. Listen, recounting how God has been good to you and faithful to you in the past will sustain you and strengthen you in the present and give you something to look forward to in the future. And not only is there hope in remembering, there is a danger in not remembering. There's a danger in not remembering. That is, if you're forgetful of who God has been to you in the past, you'll be forgetful of who He can be to you and it will affect your behavior. Look at Judges 8.33 or just listen to Judges 8. It says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made the Baals their God. Listen to verse 34. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love there's not only a call to remember, there, listen, it's dangerous. It could come with a warning label. If I could give you a warning label right now, I would say, you must remember. You must remember. This is why people are in the habit of keeping a journal. Because you, you can already forget the blessings. You can already forget the answered prayers. You can go a year. You can go two years if you're being buffeted by disappointment after frustration, after difficulty. That time in the desert, your mind is going to search for something to hold on to. A memory of how God has been faithful. And listen, if you're not careful to write them down and to be telling other people about how God has been good to you, you're, you can forget you can forget. So that's the first thing is look back to gain comfort and hope for future. Look at who God has always been. How faithful He is. The second thing I want to impress on you today is that there is a secret that you can learn in, in lean times. Right? There's a secret. I, everybody loves secrets. Everybody kind of, huh? Secret? You know, listen a little closer. I, I like to hear secrets. I like when someone shares with me um, something that went well and something that they, they learned from, especially in a difficult situation. And so there is a secret that can be learned here. And Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 4. And the secret is learning to be content and to have faith in God's perfect provision. Listen, if you're going through a lean time financially or spiritually, it, it, there's a secret that you can learn about contentment. And Paul hints at it in Philippians 4. It's not a hint. It's a, it's a very clear statement. Philippians 4, just listen. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Somebody wrote him a letter and he said, uh, wow, great to hear from you. It's been a while. Uh, I, I, I'm in great need, and and uh, and for the last period of time, I've had a lot of needs, and and uh, you've been able to meet those needs. He's writing to the church of Philippi, and so I rejoiced that now at length, finally, your concern has been revived for me. And then he, not to be snarky, but he just says, "Well, you were indeed concerned for me, but you probably just didn't have an opportunity to to meet that need." 
Have you ever felt forgotten? Have you ever felt like somebody has not met a need that you have and you're waiting and waiting and waiting? Well, during that period of time, this is the secret, Paul says. In verse 11, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, that is humbled, and I know how to abound, that is to have everything I need. Listen, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, the moio, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Don't you want to know what that secret is? I mean, haven't you ever experienced plenty and then times of need? And so Paul is saying, I know what that secret is. The secret is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, we often pull that out of context and throw it on a pair of shoes and just say, this means I can make three-pointers all day long. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can make money. I can you know, have this. Everything's going to go well for me because uh, I learned the secret, and the secret is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what he's talking about there, that verse is directly tied to your ability to be content. Your ability to be content. The secret is this. The secret is about what you have and don't have. Hungry, well-fed, lean times, financially prosperous. The secret is this. It's the idea that Jesus plus nothing equals enough. And everything minus Jesus equals discontentment. This is that secret. Jesus plus nothing is enough. And everything minus Jesus equals discontentment. I think we all know what that feeling of discontentment is like, where I just need this. I just need one more thing. And if I just had this, I would be happy. If I only had this relationship, or if I only had this you know, gift, or if I only had this bill, or if I only had... If, if all those things were met, then, then I promise you, without Jesus, it would be another... Well, well, that was good. But if I only had this now, right? I went on this mission trip, and the, the missionary had this amazing land cruiser for like three weeks. I was like searching for land cruisers everywhere. And I just thought, if I only have this awesome land cruiser, I would be happy, right? Probably is true uh, if anybody has a land cruiser lying around. But if you don't, don't worry about it. I'm not, I've gotten past it because I know the secret is um, my Mazda plus Jesus is plenty, right? My 10-year-old like beater car Man, it's good enough. If Jesus is with me, I I can be content with that. And reaching that point of contentment is the secret that our society doesn't get. You won't find contentment in our culture. What you will find is discontented people who are always searching for one more thing, for one more experience, for one more relationship, for one more purchase, for one more item of furniture or something or this there's always going to be one more thing that you need to that you think this is it this is what i need and listen if you get to a place where you can cherish jesus with nothing that point of contentment is the secret whether it's content with a small word or content with a small provision or content with no provision for a time The key is contentment. Remember and learn the secret in lean times that contentment and Jesus plus nothing equals enough. 
Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the perfection of your word, that every word of God is flawless and perfect. And though the flowers fall and, and though everything should fade away, this word will endure through eternity. We thank you, Lord, for your sufficiency. We thank you for your blessed provision. We thank you, Lord, that even during dry times, you are enough. We pray in Jesus' name that you would draw near and that you would help us to be content in you. We pray with Solomon in Proverbs who said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Only give me the food that I need today. Otherwise, I may become full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and profane the name of God. Lord, let us capture a sense of contentment. That if we're in lean, difficult, dry times, help us to remember how faithful and good You are. Your hesed, Your steadfast love endures forever. That no one can snatch us out of Your hand. Help us to remember the great things that You have done in the past that would encourage us in a difficult present. We pray that you would use this word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.